Hello, I'm Dr. Tanya Bailey, and welcome to Arts, Artists, and Advocates, a podcast-based program designed with you in mind. You can find more content on demand at lccconnect.com. Go ahead and do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations and performances that explores diversity, equity, and inclusion through the arts and activism. We're highlighting the work of people on our campus and in our community that's making a difference. Student success is a term that appears frequently in higher education. The term leads logical understanding about these particular questions. What constitutes a student being successful? How do post-secondary promote student success? And it also asks, what can it do and how can it be measured? These questions are about our show today and how we're going to take a unique look at a program here at LCC called Access. So today's lesson is entitled Student Success Equals Access. Please help me welcome Danya Oriana to the show. Welcome, Danya. Thank you. The crowd goes wild. (laughs) Danya, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Tell our listeners who is Danya and where are you from? Hi, my name is Danya Oriana, and I grew up in a small city in southwest Minnesota called Burlington. Mm-hmm. Now, tell everybody where, uh, how that small city has influenced you to have this big city life. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Worthington, Minnesota is a small city built around the edges of this beautiful lake in the Great Plains mm. where winters are harsh mm. and many people live in chronic generational poverty or working class conditions. Growing up in this combination of this beautiful yet also terrible (laughs) weather Mm -hmm. and environment, as well as these economic realities of rural America, instilled in me that ability to adapt and flow and resiliently find reasons for joy and hope in any situation. Um, You know, the other thing about living in a smaller type of community that brings out those values of togetherness and Mm -hmm. empathy right? That sense of we are all in this together and we have to help each other. Yes. And that doesn't mean there weren't conflicts, divisions, things like that. But when someone was in need, there were people who cared and there were services available. And I bring that resiliency, joy, caring, service, all of that into my work. Yes, you do. I I was getting ready to say, Dung, I think you may have to write a book. Um, Because... (laughs) Because coming from, sometimes people think that where you come from is just where you'll end up or where you land. Uh, and that's not that's not true in your case. Um, tell us about how where you've come from has impacted your current position. Tell us what you do. Um, and how does it help you advocate for this amazing community? Absolutely. So my current position here at Lansing Community College is the coordinator for the Access Scholars Program. Yay. In the Cesar Chavez Learning Center, which is one of the amazing campus locations representing the LCC Office of Diversity and Inclusion. I'm biased. Yes, I love that office. I love that office. (laughs) Shout out to ODI. Right? Exactly. (laughs) Tell us what ACCESS stands for, Danny. Sure. ACCESS stands for Access to College and Careers with Excellence Through Student Services. I love it. ACCESS. So tell our listeners, how does ACCESS utilize uh, DEI? What what does it mean? Why is it important to the work that you do? 
diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. For sure. So as the access coordinator, I am positively advocating for the community. I am empowering underrepresented, marginalized, traditionally excluded individuals to be able to achieve meaningful change in their lives through Mm -hmm. education. It's my passion for this transformative power of education, my Mm -hmm. personal background, as well as a first generation, very low income student. And that fuels my dedication and advocacy in the community. We provide student support for the personal, social, cultural, academic adjustment of our BIPOC, right? Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQAI+, first generation, low income, adult students, varying abilities, any and other marginalized and underrepresented students groups. Even with that said, mm-hmm. th- those are our target populations, but really no students are turned away from the ACCESS program. That's awesome. You know, I know that uh, ACCESS was formerly, uh, originally, TRIO. And you are also the coordinator for that. So tell me how the transition has been. Maybe what is the difference between TRIO and and now ACCESS uh, that you've seen? And how has it been working with such a diverse group of students? All right. So TRIO Student Support Services was a federally grant-funded program Mm -hmm. that was uh, here at LCC. And that, with that federal grant funding comes lots of federal oh, rules yes. and regulations, oh, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we transformed TRIO into the access program and we're no longer under those federal rules and regulations, we're still providing all of that um, support for mm-hmm. the students, but we're able to serve even more students, wow. other populations of students that maybe didn't qualify for services Mm -hmm. under the TRIO program. Um, We're able to connect with and partner with even more offices on campus, academic advising and the academic success coaches and financial aid and learning commons and writing writing center and the library counseling, all Mm. these other supportive services. We're able to just really reach out without borders all across campus to make sure that students are receiving that guidance and referrals that they need to be able to be successful. That's awesome. Uh, I um, I, I kind of want to join Access myself just listening to you because <laughs> uh, it sounds like it's a program that provides almost like a wraparound support for students, particularly from those that are from marginalized backgrounds or, or historically um, marginalized groups of students. Um, and I'm really happy that you're coordinating that. Uh, we also like to do fun stuff here on the show. Uh, And therefore, I want to engage you, Danya, just kind of flip the script for a minute in a game we call If. Yeah. (laughs) So If is an amazing opportunity uh, for us to have a little fun. I'm going to say a couple of If statements and you'll fill in the blank and then we'll award you with some cool prizes. (laughs) I'll do my best. All right. So if diversity was a car, what would it be and why? All right. So (laughs) diversity is all about acknowledging and celebrating our differences, right? So diversity is a car, maybe a hybrid. So one that uses both gas and electric, right? Within one car, you have different differences in the energy sources that drive the engine. But they're, they're both important and they're working together. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) You are off to a great start here, winning already on the game call, If. Okay, here's our next question. If inclusion 
was a dessert, what would it be and why? All right. So (laughs) inclusion is about making sure those differences that we talked about in diversity that are all acknowledged are welcomed, they're truly valued, Mm. um, all have a part to play. And so I was thinking inclusion as a dessert, maybe tiramisu. Oh my goodness. Right? So all all the ingredients are, they have different textures, different flavors. Um, You know, there are different spots and layers, but they're all valued. They're all important to the overall taste and that experience you get when you order tiramisu. Yeah. Listen, I think you have played this game before. You're doing (laughs) so, so well. And you're making me hungry. Um, Okay, here's our last question. If equity was an article of clothing, what would it be and why? This one really stumped me, right? So equity, making sure that everyone has the what they need mm. right to to get to the party to to really be valued and so it's that action i really was racking my brain about this one the closest i could come to something an article of clothing would be maybe a scarf oh yeah or socks but then i thought about no socks do come in different sizes <laughs> and so it's not totally equitable for everybody scarfs come in different materials and maybe people have allergies or color mm. preferences. I don't know. This one really stumped me. I, scarf was maybe the closest I could come because You're doing good. everybody's got a neck. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and we all, maybe we just need different types of material. I love it. To, to keep our necks warm. Well, I can I let you know that you have just won the game called If. Thank you. Thank you so much for playing. I uh, totally appreciate all your Response. I don't even have to have a response in, in describing what diversity, equity, <laughs> you did that so wonderfully. Okay, well, let's get ready to go on to our next segment here. We're talking about student success equals access. And we're so happy that Donya is here with us today. Let's talk about student success for our BIPOC communities, diversity, equity, inclusion, and more. How has the access program or how is the access program um, being able to lead the charge in this area to really help students have success here at LCC? Absolutely. So Access addresses student success by creating that community on campus for those underrepresented students, right? Mm. We have that multi-tiered support network, immersive layering of academic, social, professional experiences, workshops, resources, cultural wow. events, um, right? We, we're not just saying, hey, just go to class and do your homework, mm. Because yeah. students need more than that to really feel like they they belong and that they can be successful I in college. It. We're doing things that are above and beyond that referrals to those services I talked about, where we're, we're sitting down and helping students fill out their FAFSA forms and mm. their financial aid and their scholarship applications. And, and we have financial literacy workshops, right? Nice. Money is important. Whether you have oh, it or you don't, important. you need to know what to do with it, right? <laughs> um, but a lot of... Uh, a lot of people in the populations that we serve just don't have that access to, to understanding, right? How does investment work and saving and budgeting and all of those things? We have a personal academic success skills series of workshops nice. for, for study skills. You tell a student, hey, study. 
Mm. But what does that really mean? Right? right. And so so we're really breaking all of that down. We help them with transfer institution campus visits. Wow. How do you know where you want to go next if you've never been anywhere? I love right? the exposure. So, yeah. so that exposure. And then we have all of the opportunities for involvement in the campus and community cultural enrichment that are provided through the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Ding, ding, ding. Bias again. I love that place. <laughs> love that place. <laughs> I, I absolutely think that this is a program uh, as you mentioned before, is definitely for those underrepresented group populations of students, but all students are welcome, right, to receive these services. Absolutely. And so how does, you know, DEI play in role with all of that? Like how, how are you embedding diversity, equity, inclusion into the programming of access? For sure. So we embed DEI into everything we do. We celebrate that diversity, the multicultural achievement. We're fostering mm. confidence. We're, we're really working through, you know, like what I say, when we when we have a workshop mm -hmm. or something like that, we are looking through our materials and making sure that everybody has representation and that the language that we're using mm -hmm. makes everyone understand that they belong, that this, this uh, academic environment that yes. we're in is for them too yeah. and that they can be successful. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget that when students come to uh, college. It's a whole new environment, right? Uh, and I know being in a new city or being in a new environment, I'm looking for things that are familiar to me or someone to at least <laughs> walk me through or, or give me warm handoffs on where I need to go. And it sounds like access is, is giving warm handoffs, being that wraparound service and support. And I appreciate that. You know, on the show, Danya, we, we also do a deeper dive. We call uh, this segment Getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And that means talking a little bit about race and our identity. Uh, and so in that regard, I want to engage you in just a few questions to address that. Um, tell our listeners about your first or your earliest recollection about your racial identity. Absolutely. So I, I was probably fairly young. Um, my family is uh, ethnically Scandinavian. Hmm. So mostly Danish and Swedish, as well as Nordic German. Um, and so all of our holiday celebrations involve things like foods from that area. Yes. My older um, aunts and uncles uh, spoke Danish, mm. um, things like that. Uh, I do remember this um, amazing experience I had with my, um, with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. I was... I don't know, I was probably four or five. Wow. And she sat us all down, all of, you know, all of us kids and little cousins. And she talked to us about race and ethnicity. Wow. In, in at some, four. At, it, yeah, she, she kind of <laughs> sat us down and she told us this story. She grew up, you know, in a, in a log cabin mm -hmm. out in, you know, in the middle of the plains, you know, rode horses, things like that, her mother. And she told us this story of the very first time that she went to Minneapolis, right? So mm -hmm. the big, big city. Yes. Um, and she, she said, you know, I went there and there were these people there that they looked kind of like they had dirt on their face. Mm -hmm. And I said to, it would have been my great grandmother, she said, what, 
who are those people? What, you know, can we do something for them? They seem to have, you know, be dirty and we want to help them. And, and my great grandmother from, you know, like the early 1900s mm-hmm. said to her, no, there's just all different types of people. Wow. People come in lots of different colors. And so my grandma made sure that all of us cousins and kids knew that information that mm. people just come in different colors and no, people aren't dirty or whatever. Right. And what so about, what's your what grandmother's name? Rusha. Shout out to grandma Rusha <laughs> <laughs> for teaching about race and identity <laughs> and the beautiful, beautiful, um, beautiful gift that we have in humankind. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. That I love that story. And at four. <laughs> yeah, I remember being really young and she just sat us all down and let me tell you about this. Wow. The other thing I can think of is that, um, you know, kind of on a more, you know, that was kind of a really age appropriate way to talk about it. But I, you know, I talked about that I grew up in rural Minnesota. Right. And so in a lot, a lot of people have an idea in their mind of what that means my community mm-hmm. uh, kind of racial makeup probably was. Mm-hmm. And um, Worthington, Minnesota is actually a completely unique little town in southwest Minnesota. Mm-hmm. It is 25 to 30% 30 Hispanic or Latinx, 5 to 10% African American, 10 to 15% Asian with Mm. indigenous and Pacific Island populations as well. And so I actually grew up in quite the multicultural pot (laughs) down there in little, you know, Worthington, (laughs) Minnesota. We had uh, an amazing local newspaper writer who used to pick a family every week hmm. and he would just tell that family's story. And so it. we just had that environment of, oh, we're, we're all, like I said, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. The and human here's thing. the story of this family who, who just came here from Vietnam. Or let me tell you about this other family who has, you know, been farming or something like yeah. that. And well, so know, it was th- kind that's of important. Cool. I think yeah. that I think, I think that probably helped shape you for your role that you're doing now and make you makes you more comfortable to work with diverse populations because storytelling is important. Absolutely. Especially getting to know one another. Okay, so I have one more question in this segment for you. Uh, and it has to deal with stereotypes because you know there are many out there. Absolutely. Uh, so if you could describe for us a stereotype about your culture that you would want to demystify. What would it be? All right. So I have I have one that's a serious one, and then I have a kind of a funny story to okay. tell. And so um, one stereotype of, you know, Nordic or Northern European people is that we're all very stoic mm. and not very fun and serious <laughs> all the time. And definitely I'm serious when it comes to it. But, <laughs> but I, I know you to be fun. <laughs> exactly. We are we're super hilarious, fun, um, ag- can be spontaneous, things like that. And so I know, you know, we're all just engineers or something like that, but that's not the case at all. Right. Arts and artists and everybody. Well, let's give um, a celebration for uh, debunking that stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. It's been debunked. Okay, you said you had one more. Uh, so I have this uh, funny story about something that I didn't even know was a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to um, teach at Sexton High School mm. um, at, here in Lansing, Michigan. And, um, you know, that that 
the student population is primarily African American, mm-hmm. uh, all of that. And so one day the students, uh, they called me Miss O, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of Miss Oriana, Miss O, what are you, right? Um, and so I said, well, you know, I'm Scandinavian. And this student looks at me and he says, oh, so you really like cheese. <laughs> I'm like, well, I mean, I do. do I didn't know that was associated with being Scandinavian, but sure. Well, <laughs> that is funny. Well, that's another, that's another stereotype debunk. <laughs> <laughs> she just likes cheese just because, you know, it's cheese. Right. <laughs> I love that Mrs. O. I'm going to have to start calling you that. Yes. Mrs. O. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Danya, as we get ready to um, end the show, I really want people to understand um, how they can get involved with the access program. There might be students listening, those that are enrolling in the summer or coming here in the fall, whenever they hear this uh, podcast. I want them to know uh, what's, the, what's the space like if they were to come in person uh, and where is it located and how and why should people get involved? Absolutely. So the access program, like I said, it is housed in the Cesar Chavez Learning Center, mm-hmm. which is in the Arts and Science Building mm-hmm. on uh, main campus okay. at LCC. It is in Arts and Science 1313. 1313. 1313. Mm-hmm. So if you walk in the front door of the Arts and Science Building, it is on your left-hand side, mm-hmm. and you are greeted with purpley pink doors <laughs> um, and you walk inside and it says you are welcome here right on it. the right on the wall and that's an important point right mm-hmm. we've talked about belonging yes. and and all of these issues and so we really want students to feel like this is a place where they can come there are different the space is divided up a little bit mm-hmm. into it's open with big windows but it's divided up into certain kind of areas mm-hmm. certain areas are a little bit more loungy mm-hmm. social with co- more comfortable furniture other areas are more set up for study spaces mm. and um, places where maybe they could gather together with classmates mm, or meet up with their professors. We have professional tutors that come in there and reference librarians. And then we have even some smaller private cubicles where mm. if they really just want to concentrate, they can do that. And there's and there's workstations there, too. So if they I hear need to a, use a computer. Yeah, I hear there's a big fish tank in there. <laughs> there are two giant fish tanks in there. One is freshwater fish, oh, okay. and the other one is saltwater fish. And so I always say, you know what? If you just need to come and just zone out, mm. meditate a little bit, watch the fish right before your math test, right? <laughs> Calm your stress right yes. before that, then come on in. I love it. And so... Um, the space is at 1313 Arts and Science Building. It's in the Cedar Chavez Learning Center. You're there. A team of amazing, passionate people about student success is there as well. Uh, what other things would you like to say before we leave about student success and how it equals access? Absolutely. So I... And I'm glad that you brought that up, that there's a whole team, because Mm -hmm. in the Cesar Chavez Learning Center, we have three other programs Mm -hmm. as well. We have the Men About Progress program, Mm -hmm. the WISE Institute, and the Lucero program. And one thing about ODI is that we really, truly are a team. We have these different programs. Access is maybe like an umbrella program 
that covers any and all students and really focuses in on their academic and social success. Um, but students are welcome to participate in any and all the program. And the staff from all the mm. program, we all work together. Yes. And we have students in common. And we want to make sure that no matter who greets you when you come in the door, you feel good about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what student success is all about, and access to student success, is that no student should college alone, hmm. right? That's say something that again. I say, say all the time. Don't college alone. Wow. Everybody needs a team, mm. and that's what we provide. That's what access is all about, having that team that's got your back, that helps you through all the little ins and outs uh, of being able to enter college in the first mm -hmm. place, be successful while you're here, and then graduate and go on to either the workplace, to a transfer institution, wherever that might be. Don't college alone. I'm getting a t-shirt tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Danya Oriana, for being with us. She's our access coordinator in the Cesar Chavez Learning Center. This has been such a great joy talking about student success equals access. Thank you everyone for listening and tuning in to Arts, Artists, and Advocates, a podcast-based program. And we want you to find more content on demand at lccconnect.com. Go ahead, do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations performances that explore diversity, equity, and inclusion through the lens of arts and activism. We're highlighting the work of people on our campus and in our community that's making a difference. I've been your host, Dr. Tanya Bailey, and I'm reminding you that you matter. We'll see you next time. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that help to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. Come on, Dad, I'm running circles around you. <laughs> I know, sweetie. I, Dad's not very fast these days. What about yesterday? Were you fast yesterday? No, not... Or the day before that? I, I was... Or the day before that? Actually, I, I wasn't ever really fast. Hard to believe, I know. <laughs> Kids are special. Let's treat them that way. That's okay. When I was little, I wasn't fast either. Now I'm fast, so you'll be fast tomorrow. That's how it works. Now come on. <laughs> <laughs> At St. Baldrick's Foundation, we want kids to be kids. Not just during trips to the park, but when they need us most. When they need help fighting cancer. That's why the advanced research we fund is specifically designed to help children. <laughs> I'm pooped after all this. Dad, you're supposed to do that in the bathroom. <laughs> Support St. Baldrick's and childhood cancer research today by going to stbaldricks.org and getting involved. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship since 2012. 
The Lansing Promise Scholarship offers graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. Since its inception, over 1,000 enrolled students have saved over $2 million, earning over 400 degrees and certificates, as well as 30,000 credits at LCC. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found within us. If we change ourselves, the tendencies in the world will also change. This paraphrased quote from Mahatma Gandhi is the basis of the program you are about to hear. I'm Dedalian, and this is Shining Stars, a program dedicated to searching out and bringing attention to individuals and organizations that are fostering positive change within our community and within our world. Thank you for joining me today on Shining Stars. Uh, mental health, it's a subject that's uh, been largely overlooked in the U.S. and probably most of the world as well. Uh, however, as the pandemic has become a part of everybody's day-to-day lives, the story of mental health has changed. Uh, a lot of people are finding that they are beginning to struggle with inherent anxiety, the depression, and of course the frustration that came with the uh, pandemic showing us that mental health isn't just limited to the few, it affects us all. Now, the Mental Health Association in Michigan, it's also known as MHAM, it is the state's oldest nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the care and treatment of mental illness and promoting positive mental health. To tell us a little bit more about MHAM, joining me in the studio today is an individual who has made it her passion for improving the lives of people affected by mental health conditions. I'm pleased to welcome President and CEO of the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Her name is Marianne Huff. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Well, thank you so much. I am so happy to be here today, really, to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is mental health. I well, I am happy we're able to. I I would imagine that the uh, the drive-in had to be a challenge to your own personal mental health. You you apparently ran into quite a bit of construction, right? Yeah, it was a challenge because I live in Holland, and normally it would take me an hour and a half to get here, and it took me about two hours and 15 minutes to get here because of construction and traffic and GPS rerouting me in strange ways. And so thank you for your patience. I'm just grateful I made it. I am thankful for that you forged on and made your way here because I was uh, really interested in talking to you a little bit about the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Uh, I I was reading your bio on the MHAM website and you seem to have dedicated your professional career towards bringing more awareness and understanding towards mental health. It seems to be like your thing, like this has always been a part of your life. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Well, I think that's a really good way to describe it. I Mm -hmm. I really think I was sort of born or pre-programmed to work in the mental health space because like a lot of people that work in mental health, Mm -hmm. I have family members and friends who struggled with significant mental health conditions, uh, starting with my 
on my dad's side, my grandmother and my uncle, both of whom struggled with schizophrenia. Uh, Grandma struggled with it back in like the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s when we really didn't have any treatment. Right. Um, And actually was at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Oh. Um, And then my uncle, her, uh, my dad's middle brother, unfortunately developed the disorder as well. And um, he ended up in adult foster care um, when he got older. Uh, The interesting thing about him was that he had um, a master's in business administration from Columbia University and was very successful in advertising before he had his final breakdown in his 40s. Um, And then also... I had a younger brother who had bipolar disorder and a cocaine addiction that unfortunately took his life in 20, 2008. So there's a lot of other friends and family, but like I said earlier, I think a lot of us end up doing this work because when you love people who have a mental health condition, you're very up close and personal with what goes on. And unfortunately, even though it's 2022, I believe that we still struggle under the burden of stigma when it comes to I, mental I health agree, conditions. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and I was kind of hinting towards that in your introduction there, the fact that mental health, and you, you even mentioned it uh, back, back when, uh, I assume that was the Kellogg facility in, yes, in Battle was. Creek. Okay. Yes, it was. Uh, how mental health was largely, I, I think you put it best with stigma. You know, it had a stigma about it, and it still does. However, would you agree that it seems to be migrating a little bit where, where people are, are coming, I don't want to say acceptance, uh, just more of a, a forgiveness and understanding of it, maybe? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest shifts that's happened, particularly in the 90s, we called it the decade of the brain, mm-hmm. because we were sort of understanding that these disorders, there's a genetic component, there's a neurobiological component, because for a long time, I'll, I'll just go back to people with schizophrenia, that, you know, parents were blamed for their children's mental illness. Now, that does not mean that, you know, somebody might not have trauma, environmental trauma, things happen in childhood that might not push them in the direction toward developing a major mental health condition. But there is definitely, all the research shows there's a genetic component that these disorders run in families. I mean, a lot of, um, they've done twin studies with individuals with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and depressive conditions. I mean, there's a reason why, too, today we do genetic testing on individuals to determine what antidepressant will work most effectively for them. Mm -hmm. So, for example... You typically might see anxiety and depression running in families. Okay. So one of the things a doctor might say is, what what kind of antidepressant is your mother on? There's a good chance that if their mom's on Zoloft or Wellbutrin, that Zoloft or Wellbutrin might work for you okay. because of the genetics. So the good news is that in 2022, we're recognizing that depression is no different than having type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. The negative piece is that there's still an aspect to it where it can be considered a moral failing. Parents did this to you. You know, you're not, you know, pull up your bootstraps and just get over. I mean. But that was very much the mentality that I grew up in. And and that's the way I, I think a lot of us grew up 
as as much as that must have been difficult for you to grow up in that uh, with, with so much of it surrounding you, the mental health conditions, um, uh, it's wonderful that it, it kind of guided you to what you're doing. And uh, one of the uh, people that I ended up meeting uh, randomly in some ways, uh, Kristen Taylor, your colleague, a friend of mine, we ended up uh, bumping into each other and she mentioned that uh, she worked for the Mental Health Association and uh, we got to talking a little bit about it. And that's, that's I'm, I'm glad she was able to connect me with you. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with the organization before even meeting Kristen that day. And then she said she was working with you guys. And I was like, oh, I've been wanting to talk about this on the show. Uh, so I'm assuming that there are others that aren't familiar with the organization. So could you explain the background of, uh, of MHAM and a little bit about its goal? Sure, absolutely. So just a little bit of history so you can understand where we come from, because we were actually, when we were formed in 1936, by the way. I, I noticed that on the website and I was... I don't want to say floored, but it's, I was because I was like, I didn't realize they were around that long. Okay. Yeah. So we were originally called the Michigan Society for Mental Hygiene. Mm -hmm. And if you ever took a psychology class in high school or college, mm -hmm. you usually would read about a guy named Clifford Beers. Okay. And the name's familiar. Yes. And the reason that's important is because Clifford Beers wrote a book called A Mind That Found Itself. Okay. And what he was, was he was a Wall Street stockbroker who had a series of psychiatric breakdowns when he found out his brother was diagnosed with epilepsy. All right. And he ended up in both public and private. At the time, the early 1900s, we called these places asylums. So he ended up in a public asylum and he ended up in a private asylum. And what he did, the conditions were so horrible that he wrote the book called A Mind That Found Itself. Mm -hmm. So basically from that book... Um, there, what came forth from that was the very first mental health association in the United States. And where was that? That was in uh, Virginia. Oh, okay. So they create the, the, basically the National Mental Health Association. And then around the country, you know, states that wanted to could create what's called affiliates. And right. so in 1936, we became an affiliate. The number one goal was to make sure that individuals with mental health conditions received appropriate treatment and care. Because the other historical piece that I must mention is that throughout the 1900s up into the 50s, we did not have any antipsychotic medications for people with schizophrenia or psychosis. Right. So basically... By the time the 50s rolled around, we had almost 500,000 people across this country in large, sprawling, insane asylums mm -hmm. or hospitals, and they didn't have really any treatment except for, fortunately or unfortunately, we had ECT, mm. electroconvulsive therapy, where mm. you shock people. Right, right. We also had, back in the 40s, we had what was called insulin shock therapy where they would give people overdoses of insulin and they would put a long rubber tube down their nose. Oh, they would put, give them high doses of sugar to bring them out of the coma. You know, wow. they, uh, we used to use a drug called metronazole to shock the brain as well. Ice baths, hot baths, 
you know, and then the other one um, is what we call the prefrontal lobotomy, mm-hmm. which was invented by a Portuguese um, neurologist named Egas Muniz. Unfortunately, he won the Nobel Prize for psychosurgery for the frontal lobotomy. And what that did was that caused a guy named Dr. Walter Freeman, who was known as the lobotomist, okay. was, was lobotomizing a lot of people. As a matter of fact, historically speaking, Joseph P. Kennedy had his daughter, Rosemary, Mm-hmm. subjected to a lobotomy by Dr. Freeman. Oh, wow. And it wasn't until the 70s, I mean, psychosurgery, which is what they called it, because, you know, and some of you that are squeamish, you might want to not listen to this part, but what basically... I'm, I'm going to have to be one of those people, Well, <laughs> what a lobotomy was, was literally they would they ended up, because the orbital bone is one of the thickest bones in the body. Right. They would scramble the limbic system, which is in the frontal lobe. Oh. They would use an ice pick. Oh, wow. They would use an ice pick to go through the eye and scramble the connections, and people would become very, very placid. Um, one of the most well-known individuals to receive a lobotomy was um, an actress named Frances Farmer. Okay. And uh, there's a well-known movie back in the 80s with Jessica Lange where she played. Still in the 80s? Yes, Frances Farmer. Did not Farmer. know that. Yeah. So, so you wait, know. Wait, wait, do, yeah? do you happen to know when they stopped doing? Actually, the movie about Frances Farmer came out in the 80s. Frances Farmer was lobotomized in the early 70s. So it was around okay, the okay. early 70s I they see. stopped doing it because not only were people having no emotion. I mean, the uh-huh. limbic system yeah. is where emotion sits. But they were also bleeding, bleeding to death. I mm-hmm. mean, it was it was not, obviously, it was not helpful to do that. But point being that why we are where we are today, particularly with people with more severe conditions, is in 1952 was the development of the very first antipsychotic called Thorazine or chlorpromazine. Okay. It was developed by the French, and then it came to the United States in 1954. Now, lots of side effects with Thorazine. However, what it did do was it actually gave hope that perhaps we could find a treatment mm-hmm. so that we could get people out of these institutions okay. and into the community. Because around the time that Clifford Beers wrote his book, um, we used to have, when we had sprawling state institutions in this country, or actually in this state, the very first one was the Eastern Asylum for the Insane in Kalamazoo. These hospitals were actually acres and acres of land with an administration building. And then the, the patients, if you will, were flanked in these cottages. But the staff actually lived on site with the clients. They had their own bakeries. They had their own, actually, they had their own dairy farms. Mm-hmm. They had their own farms and the patients worked there. Okay. Um, so it was like a little city. The problem was they were becoming grossly overcrowded to where people were like on top of each other. They ran out of room and that was actually depicted. So when Beers wrote his book, a mind that found itself, Congress became aware of it. And then in 1946, a book came out called The Snake Pit by a woman named Mary Jane Ward, Mm -hmm. which depicted what was going on in state hospitals. That became a movie called The Snake Pit starring Olivia de Havilland. That movie actually, and this is where media is really helpful in many ways, 
that brought attention again to the United States Congress about conditions, and that's where the uh, the National Institute for Mental Health was created, due in part to the the movie The Snake Pit. So MHAM, what we've been about is making sure that number one, originally, because I have the old meeting minutes from when they founded it, it's real fun to read. Because it's obvious that you have read them. <laughs> we had, you you are a walking encyclopedia of this. Oh, thank you. Well, we had Mrs. Edsel Ford. Okay. On our board at one point, oh, and wow. a lot of the founding members of the Mental Health Hygiene Society of Michigan were doctors and psychiatrists who desperately wanted to see that people who needed to be in institutions were treated better. So okay. that was the foundation. But then it was focused on things like looking at ways to improve treatment, you know, research, public policy, mm-hmm. for example. Um, the only state hospital for children in this state is called Hawthorne Center. Our organization had a lot to do with the founding of Hawthorne Center. All right. We had a lot to do with the founding of some of the other state hospitals. Mm-hmm. As we moved on, um, we became also focused on community education about mental health conditions. And then for about the last 20 years, we became pretty focused on mental health public policy. Uh, We're moving back into education. But for example, some of the legislation that the Mental Health Association was really um, instrumental in was a bill that just got signed into law by Governor Whitmer back in March called Senate Bill 412. And for those of you who don't know, why is that important? Well, after battling for a long time, MHAM and a lot of other advocacy organizations were able to get into law that individuals with certain conditions who have Medicaid mm-hmm. do not have to go through prior authorization or step therapy to mm-hmm. have access to the better medications. That's a huge step there. Yes, it is. It, it, was, it was years in the making. So, like, for example, if someone has a mental health condition, let's say they do have schizophrenia. Previously, they might have had to gone through older medications. It might not be as effective like a drug called Prolixin, Haldol. Now they can access the newer medications that are out there and save themselves the burden of perhaps a lot of side effects. So that's just an example of some of the work that we've done. Obviously, Mental Health Association in Michigan, like any organization, has evolved over the years. Um, but, but we will always be focused on mental health public policy. Uh, there's a hearing at the House Health Policy Committee. One of the issues we've been tackling is mental health parity. We have some parity bills that are out there. And if you're not familiar with mental health parity, basically the easiest way to say it is mental health conditions need to be given the same amount of treatment as physical health conditions. Okay. You talked a little bit about your story. You talked about beers. In both cases, there was some some tragedy in there, but I always like to celebrate the good that comes out of that. And a lot of what I think about is how positive change does come about out of tragedy. Part of the show is is kind of figuring out how positivity exists within us. Can you tell me about how you would define positive change and how do you feel MHAM falls into that? That's a great question. I mean, you've already kind of expounded on it already a lot, but if you could. Sure. Well, let me let me actually say it this way. I, I define myself as really a very positive person. You seem very much so. You know, and a person who 
looks at a problem and, you know, depending on the problem I might have, you know, some strong feelings about it. But here's what I say about advocacy and why I advocate. My definition of advocacy is this. It is an antidote for despair. Okay. In other words, we are presented with problems all the time. We see problems with public policy. We see problems with law. We have societal problems. Mm -hmm. I believe that one of the reasons why it's important to have advocates, because I've been a disability rights advocate for 25 years, is this. I can look at what's going on and I can say, well, woe is me. You know, like uh, some personal stuff in my life, I could have said, oh, woe is me. But instead, what I did was I advocated for something better. And that's why I advocate, because I know that even though there are problems, I trust that human beings and human ingenuity can figure it out if they have the will to do so. Okay. Sometimes part of the role of an advocate is really the piece about helping people find the will to do so. Right. Uh, particularly when mental health in our state for years has been somewhat of a political football Mm. um, and subject to a lot of scrutiny. I mean, you know, politics is in everything, but by the same token, that also shows that people that um, politicians and people that are elected, they do care about it. But for me, positivity is all about looking at something and instead of focusing on the worst possible outcome saying, what do I need to do to change this? Yeah. What yeah. can we what can we do? For example, COVID, you know, the pandemic has been really hard on everybody. A lot of people have suffered greatly because of it. At the same time, the good news is that we are now finally recognizing that mental health must be treated in the same way that physical health is treated. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like I'm a fairly balanced person, but I, I can tell you I experienced a lot of the anxiety, the uh, the depression, things that came along with it. And um, yeah, indeed, it's uh, definitely we recognize it more. And it, and I've, I've definitely noticed an uptick, a change, uh, if you will, a focus, more of a focus on it. So it is a, a good thing. Once again, celebrating the, the, the positive that came out of the tragedy. Uh, if someone's listening is interested in uh, mental health assistance or happens to know somebody that needs help, what do you tell them? You know, what would you say is your very first step? Okay. Well, if, if someone needs mental health treatment or assistance, for me, it really is going to depend upon what the issue is. Okay. So, for example, if somebody's having what we would call an acute psychiatric crisis, Mm -hmm. then where they're suicidal, Mm -hmm. then I would tell them to reach out to their suicide, their local suicide hotline or the crisis line. Okay. Makes sense. Um, Because depending on what's going on with the person, at least when you reach out to the local crisis line, they can at least get someone to talk to. That person can do an assessment to determine what the next step is. Okay. So that's one option. Sometimes family members reach out to us because they have a loved one who's been struggling with some significant symptoms of mental illness for a long time. Mm -hmm. Families often have, when they have a family member like that, it's amazing to me that the family member with the mental health condition can go for years and years without any treatment because the family doesn't know what to do. Right. Part of that is because in our state, and, and it's across the country, is when it comes to mental health treatment, 
certain conditions a person might experience, we have what's called adagnosia, which basically is a term that means I don't think there's anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So we see that a lot with certain conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, where someone clearly is struggling with something, but the disorder itself says, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. You know, and the other piece to that is there is nothing that says that a person can't walk around hearing voices, that they can't think that aliens are, you know, tapping into their brain. And, and I'm not being facetious, but these are real things that I've heard from people sure. throughout my career. Um, or that a person can't be really depressed. Mm -hmm. But what makes what sort of the the line in the sand or the edge, if you will, where someone goes from sort of being on that edge to, you know, maybe they should get mental health treatment, but they're not a threat to self or others. But when they go beyond that, so I'll give you an example, someone who has maybe, you know, psychosis, which means they're out of touch with reality. Mm -hmm. They typically believe that, you know, aliens or someone, the police are following them. When they get to the place where they start acting on that paranoia, where they start becoming threatening, maybe, sure. or they start engaging in behaviors or... By virtue of not getting treatment, they could hurt themselves or someone else. That's when it comes time for them to potentially be evaluated for inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. So going back to your question, the real issue is what's going on with the person? And then my response is formulated around that. Because the other thing I want to mention is that I'm also a fully licensed clinical master level social worker. Okay. Um, and I've got a lot of experience as a clinician. And so whenever listening to people, a lot depends on where things are and what's going on. Okay. And a lot of this information, I assume, is on your website. It is. And I actually want to tell people, we just got a new website, so I'm really excited about it. Okay. And under resources, we actually, through Mental Health America, so Mental Health America used to be called the Mental Health Association. They are our parent organization. They have on their website a list of a series of mental health assessments that anybody can take. So mm -hmm. if you go to our website, click on resources, you'll see mental health assessments. Okay. What, they, what you can do is you can take an assessment. The, all of the data is de-identified, but what it will do is it will score the assessment. And if you score within a certain range, they will give you information about how to access additional mental health services. Very good. Okay. And yes. what's the website address? It is uh, just punch in Mental Health Association in Michigan, and it will come right up. As any nonprofit Part of MHAM support, of course, uh, system is through generosity of those willing to give. Uh, can you tell listeners how they can offer their support? Absolutely. So um, if you go on our website, we have um, memberships and a membership for people can go anywhere from $25 to $50 for people that um, are more low income, veterans, um, retired people, people with disabilities, it's $25 a year. What you get you know, if you have a membership is you get access to every month, um, we do an electronic newsletter that gives public policy updates about what's going on in Michigan. We give um, mental health resources. We talk about what's going on in the mental health community. Mm -hmm. 
Every um, quarterly, we do public policy roundtables. Mm -hmm. So with our lobbyist, Stephanie Johnson and myself, that's for members only. I uh, just want to say that, you know, we're, there is a lot of mental health legislation out there right now. Yes. So we will give updates on that. We do webinars. Um, if you go on YouTube, you'll see that, you know, just again, Mental Health Association in Michigan, we have 18 webinars. We're always having webinars. We plan to do a lot more educational types of activities for members. So there are some definite um, benefits to membership. So you Certainly, can do the yeah. men membership, but also if you want to send us, you know, money, we will not say no to <laughs> that. That's no. for sure. Uh, we're running a little bit short on uh, time here, but I do want to mention that uh, you've got a couple events on the way, uh, one that is happening later this month and the other is in October. Can you briefly tell me about those? Sure, sure. So um, what we actually had, we had a golf outing earlier this month, you know, in June. But um, on October 27th, we're going to have what's called the Tribute Dinner. Mm -hmm. And that is a time-honored tradition with the Mental Health Association in Michigan, where we honor people who are mental health champions. And this year, we are going to be honoring uh, Senator Stephanie Chang mm -hmm. as Legislator of the Year. And we are going to be honoring a doctor from Lansing named... Dr. Farhan Body, who is the CEO of the Free Medical Clinic, mm -hmm. for all of his work as a primary care doctor. That event will be held um, at the Novi Sheraton. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our website, you can find out more about the event. We It's always a great time. Very good. And again, if you want to find out about that, just uh, do a search for Mental Health Association in Michigan. All right, Marianne, I want to thank you very much for coming in and talking to me a little bit about MHAM. We have one final question. It is uh, the question that I ask of all of my guests. If you had the ability to snap your fingers and put one thought into the collective consciousness of the entire human race at the same time, what would that thought be? Maintain hope because change, positive change is always possible. It's always on the horizon, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the one thing I have to tell myself anytime I do get in a funk is, is brighter days are ahead. They will be here. This is a passing time. Yes. That's a good one. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the moment, things can seem really dark. Mm -hmm. And I know that we have a lot of tough stuff we're dealing with as a planet. But I do believe that when a, when people come together and they, they sort of row in the same direction and they work together collectively, mm -hmm. change is possible. And, and we, I don't think we're, you know, I think there's always a reason to be hopeful. Well, this, this goes back to the same thing that we've been talking about, how so many wonderful things can come out of so much tragedy. We've seen so much of that over the last, I'd say, well, actually since 2020. Yeah. Um, so that's a wonderful one. Thank you, Marianne, for coming in and talking with me a little bit about the uh, Michigan, excuse me, the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. I look forward to it. I'd, yep. I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Remember, we can all contribute something good to this world, no matter how big or small. A simple smile, a friendly gesture. That's all it takes to expand the power of positivity one inch further. I encourage you to find your shining star within by being the change you want to see. Thanks so much for listening to Shining Stars and, of course, sharing your time with me today. I'm Dedalian, and you can listen to this episode of Shining Stars On Demand along with other LCC Connect programs at lccconnect.org.
featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center. The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses. To find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by feedthepig.org. Well, I finally did it. My student loan is totally paid off. I can't believe it. I can't believe it either. I paid more than the minimum each month, and soon enough, it was gone. So you're just giving up? Giving up on what? The life of luxury. Egyptian cotton, caviar Thursdays, designer everything. What are you talking about? Our plan. What happened to winning the lottery and mastering the art of the perfect mimosa? Hosting galas, wearing enough jewelry to acquire a bodyguard, vacationing in the French Riviera, and then buying it. I just thought maybe it was time to prepare for my future. You know, set some financial goals, make some smart investments, open a 401k. Financial goals? Investments? A 401k? You are horrifying right now. Listen, if winning the lottery were easy, everyone would do it. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. 